Before we get into today's episode and learn about the amazing Sophie Kahn, I just wanted to take a moment to acknowledge the overwhelming violence and hate that has been directed towards the Asian American community. I know this has been a very difficult week for many in our community, and it's emotionally exhausting and hurtful, and it's hard to live your life feeling like you are not seen. These instances of violence and hate do not help the pursuit of just trying to feel at home. I know for me, art has always been a way for me to express myself and take up space and show that my voice matters. I hope today's episode reminds you that your voice matters. As South Asians, we do belong to a larger Asian American community. This Asian American community can often be confusing because there's 5 billion different people grouped into one overarching category. I know for me, I feel a great kinship between myself and other Asian Americans and what our community means, especially as we take up more space in the entertainment industry. I wish I had some profound answer of how we can combat white supremacy. Unfortunately, I don't have an answer, but all I know is that we just have to keep up taking up space and using our voices and being there for each other. Hey everyone, welcome to Brown Breakdown. I'm your host, Aporva Gandetti. Every episode, I get to sit down with South Asian artists of all types at all different levels of their careers to understand the tools necessary to build a life as an artist. We'll be talking about everything from turning a hobby into a career, obstacles along the way, breaking tired stereotypes, and changing the media landscape to be more inclusive. My guest today is actor and writer Sophie Kahn. Sophie grew up in a black and Puerto Rican neighborhood in inner city Chicago. After college, she began training at Second City Conservatory and other acting schools in Chicago and then made the move to LA. Sophie has been a part of Teatro Luna, founded by Tanya Siracho, where she created her first solo show, Excuse Me Waiter, There's Tandoori Chicken in My Tortilla Soup. She's also been involved with Salsation, Latinx Sketch Comedy Troupe, Steppenwolf Sketchbook Comedy Festival, Russica South Asian Theatre Company, Casa 0101, and LA's Funny Women Festival. Now, Sophie virtually performs her show, Mexistani, Growing Up Mexican and Pakistani in America, for schools and nonprofit organizations since its sold out award winning premiere at the Hollywood Fringe Festival. Hi, Sophie. Hey, how's it going? Good. Welcome to Brown Breakdown. Happy to be here. Thanks so much for doing this. Sophie and I met in a script anatomy class. I think I've recommended script anatomy to every single one of my friends who's a writer. Yeah, no, oh my gosh, the the programs are awesome, the instructors are great, uh, the mentorship is phenomenal. What was it, Howie uh, was our last uh, instructor, and he was insanely phenomenal. How did you find Script Anatomy? or Was that your first class you took with them, or have you taken other classes? I've taken other classes. I found Script Anatomy because the founder, Tanya Benavides, and I'm going to Chataria? Bhattacharya, yeah. She had followed me on Twitter. I don't know if this was when I was doing my one-woman show, and um, she had followed me, and I was like, oh, interesting, script anatomy, and then that's how I started to learn more about uh, script anatomy and what they stood for, the kind of classes that they had, and the kind of folks that were instructing them. And in, I think, during the pandemic, I also saw... A lot of alumni support each other and lift each other up and pitch each other to different tweets that were put out there by different showrunners. And so I was like, huh, that is dope. I'm all about being in a culture where we're lifting each other up. And so that's what attracted me to Script Anatomy. And um, I started off with Televisionary with Connor Pritchard. And uh, then my second instructor was Jimmy Mosqueda. And uh, I think that was the pilot draft intensive, which was oh, also cool. phenomenal. And then uh, the class after that that was recommended to my friend and I, Neely Pinchason. Oh, yes. Neely yeah. was in our class. Our class yeah. yeah. And so was uh, Howie's, Howie's class. And so we, Neely and I had started taking classes because that was something that just from conversations when you know like when the pandemic uh, started and everything she's like I need something to do on the weekends and I said well I'm taking 
content writing classes and writing classes and I just want to beef this skill set up a ton more and um, I said you're more than welcome to join me I think we, we started off with the second city class and it was perfect because we both started to ramp up the same time, like with more structure. Did you take any of their classes in person? Because they're based in LA. Or did you take them all during the pandemic? No, all during, <laughs> all during the pandemic, yeah. Oh, wow. So you've been like <laughs> consistently taking their classes. Yeah, yeah. That's great. I think pre-pandemic, I was more focused on acting. And I was I was going to Leslie Kahn and by now I'm I'm enrolled in their monthly class. And so that also transitioned to monthly. And then um, over time it just got a little bit more difficult where you know you do want that face-to-face interaction when it does come down to acting. That's not where I made, made the switch, but I um, I also thought that okay, this would be a great time to, delve a little a little deeper with writing because it's not as busy with production and hollywood and whatnot and so that's when i was like let me take advantage of this time to like delve into writing classes and yeah i mean when things open up i I don't even know what that would be like to drive to writing class (laughs) i know i think about that too there's so many things i started like i started working as a tutor during the pandemic Um, All of the script anatomy classes I took were online and I couldn't even Mm -hmm. imagine what it would be like to do all of those in person and not just shut my laptop and go downstairs and like watch TV or something. Yeah, or grab a snack. (laughs) Yeah, grab a snack. (laughs) Or eat my lunch during class. Just be like, oh, don't mind me. I'm just on mute. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, for sure. A thousand percent. And then um, or even um, throw in your wireless earbuds and just go off camera, take your dish back to the sink rinse mm-hmm. it yeah and all that good stuff and then just still be able to hear what's going on in class and give feedback but yeah so in class you were writing this awesome pilot called Mexistani which is based on your upbringing because you yes. are uh, half Mexican half Pakistani and I was looking in one of your interviews I loved this description you described yourself as a triple by threat <laughs> <laughs> that was when what's funny about that is that that was when so that's bicultural bilingual and bisexual yeah um but the bisexual turned into pansexual as i explored further like as i learned more about myself and oh, uh, yeah. yeah so i can't call myself i maybe double by threat but not triple yeah. anymore <laughs> got it got it double okay, by maybe... pan threat i guess and i honestly feel like i could listen to you talk about your upbringing all day i loved when you threw in like anecdotal stuff from your upbringing when you were talking about writing your pilot so mm-hmm. yeah could you tell us just a little bit about your upbringing what it was like to grow up in chicago and the neighborhood that you did yeah for sure yeah and and thank you that's very sweet of you to say like about me talking about my upbringing because definitely to talk about it now is a whole lot easier than going through it when I was growing up. And so um, I grew up, I was born and raised in Chicago, grew up in a black and Puerto Rican neighborhood, or how we say in Chicago, in Chi-Town, black Rican. Uh, we just keep it nice and sweet and short. Uh, so a black Rican neighborhood of uh, Humble Park and Logan Square in Chicago. I actually, my, my fiance is also mixed, and so What's funny is that she grew up thinking that she was Mexican. <laughs> and I grew up thinking that I was black and Puerto Rican because that was what was around me. Even my best friend, she would, you know, she would be out in front of the house and Sophie, get your black Rican moody out of here. And so um, <laughs> so I, I, I thought I was I was I was black and Puerto Rican for a long time. And then, you know, if you look like me with the curly hair and whatnot. In that neighborhood, uh, if you weren't black, you were Puerto Rican. Or if you weren't Puerto Rican 100%, then you were black and Puerto Rican. I remember that day, my dad came to the front. He's like, oi, she's not black Puerto Rican. She is Pakistani, right? And then my mom following up with, she's Mexican too. <laughs> and so <laughs> so I, that's the day that I was like, oh, okay. They so, declared it to the neighborhood. Yeah, like she's not... She, she's not black and puerto rican and i was like oh i didn't know that like i thought well wait hold on a second so okay so who in the same old were you i think i must have been like six or seven it was yeah it was like second grade first grade something like that uh my grandfather on the on my dad's side who's pakistani he um basically helped raise us 
And so he died, you know, on the Pakistani side, you don't use dye, right? You use henna to yes. dye your hair. And so he, uh, you know, he would be walking around the neighborhood with his red henna hair and red beard and people would just be wilding out like what is it what's going on yeah and uh they just they just i think it, even gangbangers were like you know like everyone just like respected my grandfather because he just looked like such a g I, it's confusing for kids i i remember when i was in first grade we were learning about islam in mm -hmm. school oh, and wow. they were like oh yeah like there's a huge islamic population in india and I knew I was Indian. Yeah. And I was like, oh, I must be Muslim. My teacher asked me, she was like, oh, Porva, is your family Muslim? And I said, yes. I had no, I just didn't know. I was like, oh, Indian people are Muslim. Okay, that's what I'm learning in school. Yeah. And I remember she, my teacher was like, oh, can I talk to your mom? I would love to like, you know, talk to her about Islamic culture and like, you know, maybe the kids can learn more. And I was like, okay, she's picking me up today. So my mom comes in to the classroom after school and my family's Hindu yeah. and she was just like so confused she was like how does this girl not know that she's not muslim it's just like when you grow up in a different place it just you don't know nothing really makes sense yeah. you have no idea what identity is or yeah. religion or anything i have this distinct <laughs> memory of my teacher being like oh you know it's like when kids get confused between lettuces and cabbages <laughs> and as i grew up i'm like i i think it's pretty different that's what made sense to us you just just Make analogies to food and we get it as kids. That exactly. is such a trip. Oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah, wow. Yeah. And your your mom probably came in like, um, no, so Yeah, she's we're... Like, um there's actually a very long history between uh Muslims and Hindus. <laughs> yes, yeah. Oh man. Like you tell me about it. I yeah, no, and, and and me growing up um with my cousins on the Pakistani side, dancing to Bollywood and thinking that though that those were all Pakistanis. And I'm, I'm thinking that, yeah, I, I'm thinking, oh, that, that's our thing. And it wasn't until way later that I realized that, oh, all those Bollywood movies that we saw, those weren't Pakistanis that we were seeing on, in the film. Those were Indians. And I was like, oh, OK, cool. Awesome. Yeah. And then, yeah, and, and, my, and then my, hearing my grandfather speak of, of, you know, like differences between either or, and I was like, oh, I just... I didn't know where was this in my yeah. upbringing. <laughs> Did your grandfather does he was he does he remember partition? Yeah. Oh yeah, for sure, a thousand percent. My grandfather, he fought in World War Two. Wow. This was, was still India, and so this is when um, India wasn't even India yet. It was obviously mm -hmm. it was uh, it was it was colonized. British Empire. Yeah, British yeah. Empire, and um, so he fought for the British Army in World War Two. And oh yeah, he totally remembers partition. He he actually has I think half brothers and sisters in India still. Well, obviously not. Um, mm. I don't know, but now he still had half brothers and sisters when he when uh, India uh, had the partition, and it was India and Pakistan. Um, so yeah. Wow. Is your family from close to the border? They are uh, in Karachi. It's not until I want to say. It wasn't until 9-11 that I really started to, um, I think it was, you know, from everything that was happening against uh, the whole anti-Islamic uh, culture that was happening and violence towards uh, Muslims, uh, even my, one of my own cousins. I think that's where more and more started to be shared with me and like it was started to be part of the discussion. And so I, I learned how much I did not know about Islam and about uh, different uh, sectors like within the South Asian culture. Um, in college, I tried I, I tried to join the Pakistani Student Association. <laughs> and I mean, that's actually part like in that in the pilot, right? Like, um, yeah, yeah, where it's just like, I, I tried to join that. I tried to join that group. I tried to join different South Asian groups. And things were just like not clicking. Like I'm, I was here from the hood. I quote unquote didn't know how to speak. I feel like I must have looked like an alien <laughs> to a lot of Pakistanis and Indians that were uh, attending the University of Illinois at Chicago yeah. from the suburbs. 
I was going to um, say a yeah. lot of people who like in those groups, even in my own college, a lot of them were not from cities. Like yeah. a lot of South Asian populations congregate in suburbs. So it's yeah. a totally different life. And it is, I mean, some of these folks had tight ass circles. Like you could not <laughs> penetrate these circles whatsoever. You could even like you, you could overhear that there was going to be some kind of a happy hour or something going on at, at some club or bar like and I would try to show up and it's like hey like hey what's up and it just like zoom. and so in my mind I'm like okay you know when you when you're out of the circle like my mom saw me go through all of this and she's like well mm-hmm. Mika just create a bigger circle include them and so I did that and I just continued to lean into what I did know which was more Latinx culture as part of working the Latino Cultural Center on campus I would invite different groups and everything, which that also entailed its own drama, like with Mexican students that were super Mexican, Mexican nationalists, like, no, this is like just... one of your characters. Exactly. Like one of my characters. My, uh, yep. And then that was tough in itself where I'm like, you know, then I, I was literally in the middle of Mexican and Latinx culture, mm-hmm. like on campus and everybody else. And I was just trying to like facilitate communication and events and collaboration between different ethnic cultural groups on campus. And so that was, yeah, it was tough. It was worth it. And then after I graduated, it was, yeah, 9-11 hit. And yeah, that was a whole nother beast of uh, several decades to come. (laughs) So when you were growing up, how did you feel like, what were your main ways of learning about Mexican and Pakistani culture? I know you mentioned that you learned more a lot more about Pakistani culture later with 9-11 mm-hmm. happening. But did you ever go to visit Mexico or Pakistan? Oh, yeah, for sure. So we would alternate. Um, so one summer we would be in Pakistan. Another summer we'd be in Mexico and vice versa. Somewhere <laughs> somewhere there uh, in the mix of things, like I would get things confused between both cultures. Like so uh, uh, in Pakistan, uh, we, you know, Pakistani cuisine, you know, we have biryani. And then mm-hmm. in Mexican cuisine, we have birria. And so I would get both confused, like birria and biryani. And I'm like, and I remember being in Mexico asking for biryani. And my mom like, uh, no. They don't have that here. <laughs> they don't have that in these parts. <laughs> yeah. They were like, we have so, rice and chicken, but. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But we don't, we don't got no biryani. I can throw some arroz con pollo together and then there goes some Mexican biryani. There you go. True. <laughs> That's about it. I think my grandfather also had fun with me like being half and half and he's mm. like, you know, so in, I think one of my first trips um, to Karachi, to Pakistan, he's just like, you know, whenever anybody asks you your name, you say Merenam Bandar Kabachi or Kabacha, I can't remember. And um, I, so everybody would ask me my name. Oh, Apka Naam Kya Hai, Apka Naam Kya Hai. Yeah. And I'm like, aha, Merenam Bandar Kabacha. What is it? Kid of a monkey's uncle? Oh, oh Bandar like monkey. Oh my God. Yeah, Bandar he Kabacha. He played you. Yeah, he totally played me. And so... So as far as the culture of like Pakistani culture and learning Urdu, like I just learned like from those trips to Pakistan and also from like second cousins that I had in mm-hmm. Chicago, which were like, which you just consider cousins. That That's it. That's how I just know from like birthday parties and through um, those trips to Pakistan and that that's it. As I got older, um, I became more intentional with where I wanted to travel to. Like as soon as I got my own credit card or as soon as I like was, you know, was able, quote unquote, with the permission of my father (laughs) to travel to like different parts of the world and whatnot. And so I ended up being able to take my first trip on my own to Pakistan. I think it was 2005 or something like that. It was for my cousin's wedding. And I remember being there and I would get so frustrated with so many things that I wish my dad had taught me. And um, mm-hmm. there's one, I, I wrote this in a, in a blog post, actually. It was an uh, experience where I was, because I was the only American cousin that attended the wedding, they put me on the the uh, the grand uh, pedestal, the, I guess, stage where the bride and the groom are sitting. Okay. And so, which didn't make any sense. I'm not getting married or anything, so why am I, I'm the third one there, literally. 
Like, I'm literally the third wheel on the stage. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> and everyone's looking at me and watching my every move. And I'm like, oh, great. And so I'm here trying to balance a plate of food. Um, I have the the glass bottle Diet Coke in my hand. And my cousin, the guy with the fish nuggets came by. And he's like, oh, you have to take the nugget. I'm like, no, I already got enough food. He's like, no, take it. And I'm like, okay. So I took the nugget. Again, I have my Coke on my right hand. Mm-hmm. Took the nugget with the left hand and then just, I was about to put it on the plate. He's like, no, you have to eat it now. Taste it. And I'm like, okay, okay. And I just took a bite with my left hand. And, okay. oh my gosh. Like, and everyone saw you. Everyone saw yeah. me, stared, and nobody yelled at me right away. But the next day, my cousin, we drive up. It's um, time for him to pick up his bride. He parks the car. He looks back at me and he said, how are you learning about Islam? And I'm like, uh, Google. And then my aunt turns around like, Google, kon hai? <laughs> She's like, Google, Google is your boyfriend. And I was like, You're like, in a way, <laughs> I spend a lot of time with Google. <laughs> yeah, exactly, right? And um, and I look to my dad and I'm like, hey, you want to jump in here? Like, kind of help me out? Like, I just give him that look and he's just, he's just like, totally like oblivious as to like the the quicksand that I feel like I'm in and um he's like you're not supposed to eat with the left hand you're only supposed to eat with the right hand and the the left hand is the dirty hand and the right hand is the clean hand I said well I don't know about you but when I go to wash my hands I wash them both like this you know I just (laughs) yeah I don't just like wave one hand underneath the faucet with some soap I don't get it he's like oi just listen to what I say and I'm like okay i won't eat with my left hand i used to get in trouble for that too i was like i don't i don't know why i can't eat with my left hand when i eat with a fork anyway yeah you know usually like you're eating with your hand and the way my parents explained it to me for i mean i guess this is like somewhat explicit i don't know but you eat with your (laughs) right hand and you wipe wipe with your left hand now i know like after and it's not until that whole after the whole experience that night that my dad like my dad and I were getting like we're in our pajamas, like we're getting ready to like turn in for the evening that night and and I'm like, man, I I'm just like looking out the balcony, just like staring at the stars in Pakistan and just like reflecting on the day, like and I feeling so frustrated. And he saw that I was crying. And he's like, What's wrong? And I was like, I just feel like I I, I don't know anything and I'm not it, it's that feeling of like not being enough and I was so frustrated and he's like yeah well you know in Pakistani culture the mother is supposed to teach everything to the kids and the father like is responsible for bringing in the the, the money and the supporting the family and working and uh, and I said yeah well that's not the case right now you married a Mexican <laughs> So she's going to teach me, you know, what she knows, right? And so he's like, yeah, you know, as long as you know your mother tongue, like, it's all good. I said, no, no, it really isn't. <laughs> so, And so um, I think between both my mom and my dad, um, at that time, and also growing up, they, they just taught me to be patient. And to, I think that's where I also learned to continue to let go of my perfectionism. And like, I think you and I both know, like, especially in South Asian culture, like when it comes down to, when it comes down to like academics or anything like that, it's like straight A's, like, or else, right? Right. And so when you grow up with that mindset and that practice, it just naturally bleeds into every aspect of your life, including for me, including being Mexican and being Pakistani. And so I had like I've got to a- be the best Mexican. Like exactly. I've got to be the best Pakistani. Yeah. Yep. I got to know all the language of both sides. It can't, you know, I, I remember being frustrated with my broken Spanish too, like growing yeah. up. And so um, they, you know, my mom was really awesome and like um, helping me be patient with myself and helping me get past and to like like really let go of the perfectionism um, which I think has really helped me like now as an adult where I don't you know like in class you know if if I'm throwing some beats together and Mm -hmm. like here you go and and we're just going to keep going back and forth and I'm going to take those notes and I'm going to implement those notes and it helps you take criticism yeah yeah. Oh yeah, because I grew up with criticism all my all my damn life. <laughs> Speaking of academics and like that pressure, you know, growing up, 
so you were pre-med in college did you did you want to be pre-med were you interested in being a doctor or no no hell no I was like uh you know in college you go through you know to all these different informational seminars and whatnot I looked at different major different focuses in um in the medical field and then it came down to either a nutritionist like an occupational therapist or a physical therapist I mean I was just messing up left and right in that field because I just my heart was just not into it Right. You know, and, and so. And it's a tough field. Like your yeah. heart really needs to be in it to deal with yeah. the things you have to deal with. I think I, that's when I started reading a book called Awaken the Giant Within by Tony Robbins. And um, I started to learn about the six human needs that drive our decisions. And I saw that. What are they? I think, it, what is it? It's um, growth, love, connection. It is uh, certainty, uncertainty. And I can't remember the sixth one. I noticed that the need, oh, prestige, I think it is. People can Google it. Yeah. Um, but Your I friend noticed, Google. Yeah, exactly. My friend Google. I noticed that the decision behind being pre-med really stemmed from my dad. And it was really driven by, it was driven by ego. It was driven by the need to please. It was driven by, you know, like the value for prestige, mm-hmm. you know, in the, in the the value of like being able to brag about, your kids to somebody else's family and then I was just like oh like I don't know about this I attended college the other person that was attending college the same uh, uh, university as I was was Janina Gavankar and so she was in the college of theater and I was like oh that is so dope I would love to just like be able to do that and like that be okay but even then like you know when these parental perspectives get hooked and into you so deep, it's very hard to shake that off, even when you do have that independence. And so I chose to be part of whatever theater that I could be part of in Chicago. I had um, auditioned for whatever I could, and that really fulfilled me at, at, the, at that time. So yeah, and so by the time that I got out of college, I just became more and more passionate about acting and theater and I had friends that were in the field and I think that makes a huge difference too because then you get to see the reality of people applying their applying themselves to their dream and you start to see how you can apply it to yourself too. Once you graduated college how were those first couple years did you dive straight into acting did you try to get another job and did you, when did you tell your parents that you, you know, were letting go of pre-med? No, what's hilarious is that, so pre-med, so my dad worked a lot. So he, the whole pre-med situation started, I should have started with this, started because I was actually engaged to be married oh. when I was 15. And <gasps> so <laughs> I, uh, my dad hits me with the news that I've been engaged to be married and I'm like oh wait hold on a second what do you mean that I'm engaged because I don't agree to anything I haven't met anybody and I'm like but dad I haven't even kissed the boy yet and he smacked me you'll kiss your husband yeah and I was like I haven't even kissed and at that time I said I think I don't know if I said kiss the boy or kiss kissed anyone yet I can't remember and so he laid out the news explained what you know prearranged marriages in um, south asian culture pakistani culture from there i spent the whole sophomore year like depressed and i probably had my first budweiser i would be too (laughs) during that time too so by i want to say the last week of school everything was packed dresses were made the months leading up to that week my fiance the guy that i was supposed to marry would mail me jewelry every like every other month like I can't wait for you to be my wife this and that I'm like oh my god I don't know what's going on I you know yeah I had I had never even had a relationship with anyone at that point at 15 years old the day before this is literally the last day of school and the next day we were supposed to fly out my mom calls my dad and she's like I have good news and my dad is like, oh, yeah, well, what's going on? And she's like, uh, Sophia has been accepted to take the entrance exam to enter this, like, it was this pre-med um, high school, boarding school in, in Texas. And uh, she totally made it up. <laughs> oh, my God. But that's what, got, that's what got the whole pre-med thing started. 
right? And so, yeah, anyways, um, so this whole time, so fast forward, in college, I feel like um, I just made the decision on my own to not be pre-med. I think um, something clicked in college because I started to become more of a student activist and especially with a lot of injustices that were happening in uh, black and brown communities that I was witnessing more and more. I noticed that uh, university recruiters weren't going to black and brown communities as, as much as they did to other communities to recruit folks to come into college, all that stuff. I think fighting for those issues also lit something in me where I didn't have to answer to anyone about my major. But I still selected psychology because I... I was really, that was, I was genuinely interested in understanding the violence that was happening around me, like in my old neighborhood and like, why did people choose to do the things that they did? All of that to say is that I had this newfound conviction and, and just pull towards helping uh, black and brown folks enter college. And so right after college, I became a, a college um, counselor to help you know to help those that came from my neighborhood um in my old high school come into college and i would help i i think i i started creating these workshops called um how to make a thousand dollars an hour legally <laughs> oh that's awesome tons of people would come like oh yeah i want to know it would be like yeah you know so you fill out this scholarship fill out this scholarship form this is the recommended method and it helped people with their scholarships and and whatnot so yeah, that's that's pretty much what I did at first. And then mm -hmm. uh, from there, I got recruited to be part of the U.S. Hispanic Leadership Institute. I started to become very politically involved um, with a lot of different organizations and groups and, and politicians. And then 9-11 hit. And that's when a lot of these politicians and Latino advocacy groups and, and different circles that I was a part of that started to recommend that I use my mom's maiden name. And so I think with all of this going on and and I with that, I also had the dream of running for office as well. And so after that, after 9-11, it was like, yeah, I don't know. I don't know about running for office. I don't know about being in the White House anymore. Wow. <laughs> That's when I continued to lean deeply into acting and the arts and my my initial passion because it was a way to escape everything that was going on i had a i had a cousin on the pakistani side that she switched her name to a latinx not, uh, name dyed her hair blonde had blue contacts and just yeah that's like it, it hit it i feel like it hit a lot of muslims like really really hard and it was very tough to witness during the time and uh, yeah, I, I ended up escaping into Budweiser actually uh, because I couldn't know I really couldn't work comfortably like within politics and government back then. Um, yeah. I'm super happy to see it now. I ended up working for Jesse Jackson's son with his Budweiser distribu distribution center. Who would have thought? Who would think about a Muslim being at a very American company? But I felt like it was like the place to literally hide out and just like yeah. not be bothered with, with nothing. And that's where uh, a friend there recommended that I go to Second City and said, Sophia, nice. you, you know, Sophia, you need to laugh every day. And um, that's that's where I went to make sure I laughed every day and that I didn't fall into a deep, deep depression because I was already depressed. And I continued to lean further into acting and theater from there. Uh, you did the conservatory program at Second City, right? Yeah. What yeah, other classes yeah. did you take around Chicago and were you auditioning for plays? Were you putting up your own stuff? What's funny is that the first audition that I ever had was with Tanya Saracho, back then from a theater group that she co-founded called Teatro Luna. And this, in, for this audition, um, you had to write your own monologue and you had to perform it. And so this was actually the beginning of Mexistani because wow. I wrote about being half and half. I think it was, it must have been uh, like, like an interaction between my mom and my dad because I remember converting from like being my mom's character to my dad's character and going, doing that back and forth. That's so funny you say that because when I auditioned for something at Second City, I did a really, I had to write my own monologue and I did something very similar where I played two characters. Oh, cool. I went back and forth between being myself and my grandfather. Oh, nice. So it's different, but I was like, oh my God, that's 
That's so funny. And what's what's powerful about doing your own content, right, is that it really stems from a very deep place in your soul. So it's it's super yes. fulfilling to do yeah for sure and then so from that audition i uh, we were so i was selected to continue pushing further with that content and that's where i created excuse me waiter there's ter- there's tandoori chicken in my tortilla soup yes for, amazing and, title <laughs> super long title and that was for the solo latinas project uh, where Tanya Saracho and then the other co-founder, Koya Paz, they wanted to create something where people, where Latinas would create their own content and perform it. Because that title so damn long, <laughs> I just ended up shorting, shortening it to Mexistani. And then oh, so that's where okay. Mexistani was born. Yeah. So how did you take, excuse me, waiter, there's tandoori chicken in my tortilla soup, to Mexistani, that full one-woman show. It happened over the course of so many different years after that. So after, excuse me, waiter, there's tandoori chicken and tortilla soup. <laughs> we are only saying the entire title in this podcast. We exactly. say the whole title. The whole damn thing. So after that show, there was uh, someone in the audience that um, had recommended me to do it at, um, at a university. And then from there, I kept just popping it at different universities. And at first doing it as a monologue and then ended up I, I did stand up with it a couple of times because people in, in, in stand up comedy world see a one woman show I'm like oh yeah you do stand up it's like no it's two different things it's this totally is, different this is theater like <laughs> so I would convert it sometimes and so it wasn't until let's see after so many years of popping around to different universities that someone had seen the had seen me perform and said, "Have you ever thought about doing a full, like a a, a feature feature length, like an hour and a half?" Yeah, exactly, one woman show. And I was like, "Huh, I never thought about that. I don't know if I can talk for an hour and a half, just me, and like, what would that even look like?" And so. I started to explore that and on my own. And I think it wasn't until I came to LA about 10 years ago that I met Jessica Lynn Johnson. And I also met, met up with my mentor, Josefina Lopez, who I had followed ever since I got her book of poetry for five bucks at the National Association of Chicana Chicano Studies Conference. And so at her theater, Casa 0101, that's where I started to develop Mexistani more fully. Like I started to develop the content of it, but it still didn't have any shape. Then when I met Jessica Lynn Johnson, that she runs the solo, oh my goodness, solo theater at Wi-Fire. She specializes in one woman, one person shows. Oh, And wow. so she helped me basically create the structure around what Mexistani and, and develop it as a one person show, even more fully so yeah how does the structure of a one-woman show work because i've actually i've never seen a one-person show that's not stand-up do you play multiple characters are there acts how does that work yeah she basically had me just kind of put all of the content and everything that i created aside and she's like okay just create like a timeline from like high school to now like of all the different events that come to mind, different situations, scenarios that really uh, created all these different pivots to where you're at now. And so we basically structured the the show around that. So from that timeline, then my job was just to flesh out each section a little bit more. And then I had all of a sudden I had like 25 pages, like single line <laughs> written out it was it was from there and then the then there's the whole like production aspect and the set design and what images and music and there's a rap you know because there's a time that I was also uh, broke living out of my car in LA and I needed gas money saw a, a, a flyer that advertised um, so that all just got weaved into the one woman show and then I ended up performing it at the Hollywood Fringe Festival. I was gonna ask if the Hollywood Fringe Festival was when you moved to LA but you said you moved to LA 
10 years prior to that. Yeah. So what was it like transitioning from Chicago to LA? Oh my gosh. It was, a, I had a blast. It was so, Chicago, the, the winter that I decided that I was like done mm. with Chicago and the Chicago winter was af- was when I um, spent 45 minutes shoveling the snow around my car, my little Toyota Corolla. <laughs> and then after 45 minutes, I'm like, okay, cool. Like I still got time to stop at Starbucks for my coffee. And um, I go to open up the driver's side and the the handle pops off. And I'm like, all right, cool, no problem, go on the other side. And then that handle popped off. I was like, all right, no problem. There's two more doors. I tried the third, the fourth, and and I, so all four handles had snapped off. Oh, because of Because it was so cold, yeah, it was so cold. And uh, the metal, like something, I don't know, Toyota Corolla. The amazing immigrant car, the Toyota Corolla. You know? <laughs> and so then I was like, okay, I am so done with Chicago. Like, it just does not make any sense. And so I was lucky because I had a contract to do some tech work for, I think it was HP. And they were looking for someone to do work west of Rockies, California, Seattle, and all that. And so I was like, okay, perfect. I'll use this work to kind of figure out like where I would live in in LA and whatnot. Ended up living in Downey because I thought that was near. I thought that was just a neighborhood of LA. Uh (laughs) I had no idea that was like complete suburb. Man, Downey's like my Southgate. It's way down in the South, LA. I had, I still had my Toyota Corolla with the fixed handles. (laughs) Drove it out there. headed out here um and yeah i moved out here i think it was uh, january of 2009 was when uh, i came out here so uh, my sister was the one that drove the car out here and my my younger sister and i my youngest sister we flew out little did i know that my my middle sister she wanted to drive out here because it allowed her to make a pit stop and uh, to see her friends along the way <laughs> <laughs> uh, but nonetheless, like they, I really am grateful for my sisters for helping me move out here. Yeah, and then from there, I hit the ground running with networking as much as I could, getting into classes, getting getting the headshots, getting the reel, all that stuff. What's funny is that the transition was hilarious because I naturally looked for theater, feeling like I wasn't ready to jump into TV just yet. And so I continued doing theater out here, which was tough in itself because... Uh, in Chicago, you know, when we're thinking about rehearsing for theater, it's like several months. Here, it was like, okay, we're going to start rehearsing March 1st. When's the show? Oh, April 1st. It's like, oh, okay, a month okay, of rehearsals. Okay, cool, turn around. And I uh, continued to try to network with different groups out here as well. I was like, okay, so where where is the South Asian actors crew or where is the mm. latinx theater crew or, or actors crew or whatever and so i did find um nalip nalip is the national association of latino independent producers and then um i in a training that i was offering i also came across sammy chand of ruckus ruckus avenue productions and he uh helped do music for the South Asian, or sorry, the Indian Film Festival. I, that, I was super happy because I was, you know, again, able to continue learning about both cultures and um, continuing to connect with folks from both cultures. When did you feel like you had like a really solid footing in LA? Like you had your reel, you felt like you had a good community and you were like ready to go out and find agents and representation. That didn't really happen until I had moved to San Francisco. So I had, with the recession and everything, Mm. I ended up getting deeper into tech for survival. That took me to San Francisco because also who do we find in tech fellow South Asians yes. so, <laughs> so I was I was having fun connecting with like with more South Asians like learning more about my culture but then I, I started to forget like oh yeah like this is why I'm here in LA and whatnot and um, I think at that time I didn't find m- many South Asians in the entertainment community um, at that time and so I naturally went to San Francisco. And so it wasn't until I went there that um, I was reached out about um, a show called Unfair and Ugly. I, yes, I saw that on your resume. I watched a yeah. little bit of it. Oh, cool. And one of my favorite South Asian actors who 
I she doesn't know me, but I like am such a fan of her, and I hope she can come on the podcast one day. Kasser Muhammad. Yeah, Kasser, that's my girl. Yeah, yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, she's amazing. Kasser, Kasser came. So Kasser came to my one of the Mexistani shows. And that's how I ended up meeting her. What's funny is that I didn't know that there was this huge chunk of South Asians that came to see the show. And it was during Ramadan as well. I, I didn't notice that they, they came to the 11, my 11 o'clock show during French. Oh, Not that's until so like, fun. Yeah, yeah, super fun. And it was when I came out afterwards, I was like, oh, and then that's where. I think that's how I met Kosser, I think, yeah. So from there, I literally flew down just to do that show. Was I played a character on the show? I think from there, I on the drive back to San Francisco, I cried because I was like, I don't want to go back to San Francisco. This is what I really want to continue doing. And I saw, I noticed that I I fell into that whole kind of going back to the six human needs, right? I I, I realized that I fell into that whole cycle again of you know continuing tech. Because it fulfilled and it made my dad brag. The prestige. You know what I mean? like, yeah, and the uh, prestige and the ego. And I was like, oh, I was like, no way. Like, this is coming back to haunt me. That's, I think that October is when I moved back to L.A., you know. And that's when I really, like, hit the pavement, hit it hard. And, like, I was able to get my agent. And so um, Sue Ann Eden uh, from Tangerine Talent. So even though I moved here in 2009, I don't, I, it wasn't until like 2017 that I really felt. Right around the Fringe Festival. Yeah, exactly. That I felt like I was like, okay, like I was getting into the swing of things. I was, I had more folks in my network. There were folks that I could lean on and so on and so forth. And so I think that is huge. I think when you don't have a network, it's, it, it, it's definitely very tough. And I feel like one cool thing about LA that I've noticed recently and a reason why I want to move out there too is I have feel I do I have seen a larger South Asian actor community there especially in recent years more so than in Chicago just cuz it's a smaller, you know, smaller market. So, I feel like that's so great that you were able to find those people and connect with them. And just that there's more people too now than there must have been in 2009. Oh yeah, for sure. I think in 2009, like whatever South Asian friends that I did have, like they were like, why are you going to be an actor? Like, and these are, these are friends that were like lawyers, they were engineers, they were like making their money and everything. They like had like three houses already or whatever. And um, they saw acting as the thing that you do if you're not good at anything else yeah and, and it, it came out in conversations and i was like oh, i'm offended like what in the world like no like there are the, some of the most brilliant minds in the industry uh i mean it's just like you couldn't you couldn't take a rocket scientist and tell that person like okay go do acting like they wouldn't be able to do it yeah. it is is well i'm not saying <laughs> I'm not saying acting is harder than rocket science. <laughs> Just different skills, different skills. Definitely different skills. But it's, you know, it's, it's um, I think there was a huge myth. And I still see it among a lot of South Asian creatives that are still tied to either being a lawyer or physician or let's see what else. Uh, there was a product manager for Slack I think I met that was like, but I can't make the switch. I can't. I don't know because it's 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 a huge cycle that they're it's stuck ingrained. in. It's ingrained. Yeah. It's so deeply ingrained. Yeah. yeah. And for me too, like I went to University of Chicago, and all of my South Asian friends who I love dearly, like they, you know, a lot of them went on to do consulting jobs, go to medical yeah. school, and I I got good grades. I feel like at first, everyone was like wait, why aren't you taking that job that you got? Like, yeah. w- wait, what's going on? And I just, you have to be so like secure in yourself yeah. and not let those like voices get in your head. I mean, they still get in my head all the time, Yeah, yeah. you know, but it's, it's tough, especially mm-hmm. I feel like a lot of actors I know, they could have done other jobs and done them amazingly, mm-hmm. but they chose to go the harder route. It's also... I think, um, what was it? Uh, I think one friend was like, you're going to deliver for Postmates? Like, what? Since I was a teenager, I've held like almost any job under the sun. Like any any job that has, has existed out there, dishwasher, uh, waitress, whatever, like I've done it. And mm. so I've never had a problem with 
with, you know, taking on gritty work to fulfill like my passions and my dreams and whatnot. Right now, like fast forward all those years. So I switched to developing my own like consulting practice like within tech so that it allows me that flexibility. That's awesome. Such a game changer to be able to do that. You know, stemming from like what I talked about, you know, helping um, students achieve their next level. Like I still uh, work as a teacher. Like, and so now I teach tech and, and specifically like UX design to folks that are interested in entering the community. Um, and then of course, especially if there's um, uh, black or brown uh, students that can't afford, you know, like then I also help through mentorship that way as well to just continuing, continue to pay it forward and uh, fulfill that part. That's that's so great. Yeah. It's just, I feel like, I mean, other than the South Asian community for the rest of the black and brown community, I feel like it is very ignored in the tech community. Mm-hmm. So it's so great that you have that connection to both communities and you're able to pay that forward. I feel like it's one of those yeah. things where when you think retrospectively, you realize like how all of those different struggles that you had to go through are able mm-hmm. to help people now. So that's amazing. But yeah, for sure. Because I, I used to look back and like, what the heck was I doing in tech? Like I had no business. I just should have continued with my entertainment passions, whatever. But now looking back, I'm like, oh, like especially right now in the pandemic, it's affecting a lot of marginalized communities. I'm like, oh, I can use this tech side to help black and brown communities to level up on that skill set to be able to then take the jobs where they can work from home. I just wanted to ask you as well about Mexistani. So you had your one woman show and it's obviously taken so many different forms over, you know, since it first started through that monologue. But where do you see it going next? Because you have your pilot. And actually, I found it really interesting that you decided to write the pilot from the perspective of you as a teenager. So two questions there. Basically, why did you choose to write the pilot about you going to college? And where do you hope to see it continue to evolve? And so so I'm part of a, I'm in a program where it's predominantly, what is it? It's the, the women, non-binary, people of color, writers program. And in that program, so I applied and got accepted last year. It's, it's been going on since August. And initially, Mexistani, when I pitched it, this person that was my character at a digital marketing agency, working with different brands to develop their brand identity when she struggles with her own and can't Mm. figure her own identity out. And so Mexistani initially started off like that. But then when these amazing writers in this group got me to speak more about my experiences, they're like, oh my God, girl, like you need to start way back. You need to start like when when you were in college and like what that experience was like. And not only that, but it's Mexistan is also about class, you know, yeah. and the difference between middle and high class versus working class and because that was essentially my experience like coming on campus and then getting kicked off because the vice vice chancellor thought that i was like some hood rat that just came off the street like onto campus and whatnot it was also about that dichotomy as well the more that i talked it out the more that i wrote things out the more it made sense because that's really where i started to embrace both sides of me more deeply and I think anytime anybody asks me oh so you're uh you know so you're Muslim right and I'm like no I'm Muslim and Catholic um or you're Latina right and I'm like no I'm Mexican and Pakistani but then I wouldn't be able to really articulate anything like beyond that that's where I started to formulate those identities a little bit more in college so um so yeah so then that's why Mexistani starts in college in the one woman show starts as early as me saying meranam bandar kabacha please tell me that's the opening line so, i wish no but you know maybe it should be maybe, i don't know maybe I, the name of the production it should be bandar kabacha productions or something i don't know oh my god bkb <laughs> bkb but yeah i think that's the that's that's the future of mexistani right now is moving from the theater um, and live performances and um, the performances that I would do at different colleges and universities to now more TV online. I think I, I had started to kind of play around with a web series 
uh, a little bit that just really captures just like different scenarios that I've experienced, but not it doesn't really capture a narrative. And so to write Mexistani for TV is really a completely different beast, for sure, a thousand percent. I remember we both had this moment after our class where we like, in, I loved yours so much that I was just like, I just, I just want to see it on TV tomorrow. Ah, I know. Yeah, yeah, yours for me, too. I'm just craving any sort of content or story that comes from South Asian or any type of marginalized community. And a lot of the time I can't get it from TV. So these environments where we're in class or, you know, pitching ideas, table reads, that's where I'm like, oh yes, this is where I'm getting, this is where that craving is being satisfied. And I just, I'm I'm so ready to see it on TV already because I like the people that I've met doing this podcast and just in general over the past two years since I really decided to go forward with acting, mm-hmm. they're just brilliant minds mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. they deserve to be celebrated. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah, for sure. A thousand percent. Like in this in this group, in this program that I'm in right now as well, there's a Persian writer uh, that's also uh, queer that's writing something. I don't want to share her stuff because I know that's mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. confidential, but even with her show and uh, there's two other uh, females in this group as well and I'm like this is amazing like I want to see this like right now and it's totally true like we you know we try to see as much content on TV like we see we or I shouldn't say see but we don't see ourselves on TV and so sometimes it's kind of hard to connect and I think even for myself as an actress where I bob and weave from acting to writing is is when I um, when I find it hard to connect with some content that I that I'm seeing on on scripts and like or I'm not getting the jokes, you know. And so I'm like, oh, what if we tweak it like this, or what if we move it around like this? And they're like, oh, we didn't even think about that. And so I think more of that can happen when these writers' rooms are diversified. And you get to hear more of what can be like woven into the stories. And I think when that happens, it can be so much more powerful for sure. I totally agree. I couldn't agree more before I let you go. Is there any advice that you have for people who are moving to LA, starting out in their writing career or starting out in their acting career and wanting to make their own content from your experience? If you could like go back and redo something, what what would you redo or what advice would you give to someone new? Yeah, I would say one is, and something, a mantra that I've, that I've always followed is to stay in your own lane, right? Focus on your path and the steps that you have to take to move yourself forward. Because when you start to look at other people's lanes, you know, it's just like driving. Like if you don't focus on the path in front of you, if you're constantly looking at the windshield to look at your past, to look back, then you're going to crash. And you're taking advantage of every opportunity to seek mentorship, taking advantage of every free workshop that's out there. Not I, For me, I try not to utter the phrase, I'm tired. Like, I'm tired. I don't want to do this. I don't want to like do that. It's um, the second that I'm tired creeps into a brain, then... Or my brain, like that's a sec. That's time to like definitely take a break, you know, and um, reset. I was just having this conversation yesterday with my sister, where I freak out at the thought of taking a break or resetting, you know, same. because I feel like oh, same opportunities are like being missed and whatever. But I think that to my sister's point, like it's it is really important to take a break and to make sure that you're still having fun. I think when you grind so much that, you know, you lose sight of like the fun of it, it becomes very uh, much of a chore and whatnot. And you're just looking to see, oh, that person achieved this. So I have to do this so I can get there. And it's like, no, you have to just carve your comparison. Yeah. Comparison, comparing yourself to other people. That's like a a quicksand that you definitely want to avoid. As far as moving from L.A., I'm sorry, for moving from Chicago to L.A. or anywhere else to L.A., you definitely want to make sure that you have your job and to not if, if you do come from this world where you know, jobs are supposed to be prestigious and whatever. Um, there is no, there's nothing wrong with taking a job to fulfill your dream. And if it fulfills your dream, that's prestigious. 
and and that's enough. Oh, I really like that you said that. I come, yeah, I definitely come from that background, and it can be difficult sometimes, you know, oh, yeah. to just put that ego and that past and that prestige aside. But that's, I love how you phrase that. Like, if you're doing it to continue your job, or I mean, survival for anything, it's there's nothing wrong in it. There's yeah. no job is a bad job. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah the comparison and, thing too is so important and I'm that's something I'm really trying to work on. I know it's it's definitely hard for me yeah. and I just have to keep hearing it and repeating it, but yeah, mm-hmm. that's like that's a journey for sure. Yeah. For sure. Oh yeah, a thousand percent. I think um everything that has to do with your dreams has to do with what the choices that you make and that you make mm-hmm. only and there could be all these other different variables in place that may shift the way that your journey looks like in comparison with other journeys but that does not that does not like give people like a license or excuse to be like oh well then i'm just not going to work on it my dream because of this thing over here or that thing over there the way that i see it is just you know i have i i can't place any excuse in front of me at all whatsoever gotta knock it down that's awesome (laughs) thank you so much sophie it's been so much fun to talk to you and you've just dropped so much wisdom and so much to think about and yeah i just i hope i can see mexistani in all of its different forms sometime soon thank you yes for sure a thousand percent thank you and that was the brown breakdown thank you so much to sophie for sharing her story and just letting us know so much about her life and that vulnerability. Take care of yourselves this week and always. And as always, if you have questions, you can reach out to me at Brown Breakdown on Instagram. I'll see you next time.